Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. No matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what it is that we're facing in the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that you are steadfast in your goodness, steadfast in your love for us, steadfast in your kindness, steadfast in your mercy. I thank you that today we can come to you and look to you knowing that you have good for us today. That you are wanting to speak into our hearts and our lives today. And so Jesus, we just come to you and we say that our ears, our hearts, our minds are open to you. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Encourage us. Challenge us. Help us to grow, to be more like you. And to discover more of your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Well, it's great to, to be together this morning and, uh, and great to get to look out and see all your smiling, happy faces. And um, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, you know, we've been talking, uh, we're, we're kind of church family and it's been great kind of having Steve and Nikki and Pam and Roger share and different people who we're in uh, relationship with. And um, you know, I don't know about you, what kind of comes to mind for you, who comes to mind for you when you think about relationships. Um, you know, but relationships, they, they can be, you know, we have relationships of all kinds. We have relationships in church. We have relationships with friends, with our neighbors on our streets, with our husbands and wives and our children and our parents in our families, with our colleagues at, at work. You know, there are so many different types of relationships that we all have. And, and relationships can be fantastic, can't they? You know, relationships can be some of our greatest kind of joys in life. As you think back over your fondest memories, I imagine most of them kind of feature around times that you've had with people because those people are precious to you. You know, but actually, do you know, the opposite's true too, isn't it? Relationships can be hard and relationships can bring so much pain. And so many of the times that you've been hurt, so many of the times that you look back on and that are still impacting you today, that you struggle with, can be traced back to relationships, to what people have said or what people have done in the past. And let's be honest, not only do relationships kind of cover this whole spectrum of our kind of greatest joy and our deepest pains, but relationships can be confusing too, can't they? You know, how many times has somebody uh, said something or sent you a, a text message or you've sent something to somebody else and they completely get the wrong end of the stick? You know, how many times have, have you had people and they just seem to blow hot and cold and you just don't ever really know where you are with them? Relationships can be fantastic. Relationships can be hard. And relationships can be confusing. Um, you know, in the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, I'm sure lots of you have seen it. Some of you might not have, but lots of you have. There's a character called Sheldon, and, um, and Sheldon is not good at relationships. Um, you know, he he's just kind of has constantly misunderstands people uh, and finds the idea of, of friendship just confusing. And so there's one time where he decides he, he wants to get better at this and learn how to make friends. And so he develops what he calls his friendship algorithm, that if I just follow this step-by-step process then everything will work out. Uh, why don't we watch a clip and we'll see if we can learn something from him. <laughs> oh, good, you 
arrived just in time. I believe I've isolated the algorithm for making friends. Sheldon, there is no algorithm for making friends. Uh, hear him out. If he's really onto something, we could open a booth at Comic-Con, make a fortune. <laughs> See, my initial approach to Kripke had the same deficiencies as those that plagued Stu the Cockatoo when he was new at the zoo. Stu the Cockatoo? Yes. He's new at the zoo. It's a terrific book. I've distilled its essence into a simple flowchart that will guide me through the process. Have you thought about putting him in a crate while you're out of the apartment? <laughs> Hello, Kripke. Yeah, Sheldon Cooper here. It occurred to me that you hadn't returned any of my calls because I hadn't offered any concrete suggestions for pursuing our friendship. Yeah, perhaps the two of us might share a meal together. Yeah, I see. Well, then perhaps you'd have time for a hot beverage. Popular choices include tea, coffee, cocoa. I see. No, 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 wait. Don't hang up yet. But... What about a recreational activity? I bet we share some common interests. You tell me an interest of yours. You, really? On actual horses? <laughs> tell me another interest of yours. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I have no desire to get in the water till I absolutely have to. <laughs> tell me another interest of yours. Uh-oh, he's stuck in an infinite loop. I can fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, but isn't ventriloquism by definition a solo activity? Yeah. Wait, tell me another interest of yours. Hmm. Is there any chance you like monkeys? Yeah, what is wrong with you? Everybody likes monkeys. Hang on, Kripke. A loop counter and an escape to the least objectionable activity. Howard, that's brilliant. I'm surprised you saw that. Gee, why can't Sheldon make friends? All right, Kripke, that last interest strikes me as the least objectionable, and I would like to propose that we do that together. Tomorrow. Yes, I'll pay. All right, goodbye. All right. Time to learn rock climbing. Brilliant. So the next time you're struggling to make friends, you know what to do. You can get yourself a whiteboard and make a bit of a flow chart and kind of follow things through and eventually beat them into submission. Um, so they go along with something. You know, but Sheldon's a bit of an extreme and silly example, isn't he? But actually, I think so often we subconsciously approach our relationships with a set of expectations. Um, it's kind of a little bit like an algorithm. We think if I do this, then they should do that. And then everything will be kind of work out. That's how they should respond. If that is the input, that should be the output. And when the other person doesn't respond in the way that we think that they should, it kind of causes a tension between us, doesn't it? And so maybe you make a, a joke and uh, you expect that the input, uh, the output from that joke is that they laugh, but instead they find it insulting. And so they're upset and they're offended. And then their expectation is that I'm upset, so you should apologize. But you just feel defensive because your intention was never to upset them. And so you feel wrong for being blamed for doing something that you never intended to do. And so because your expectations are not being met, you end up in this full-blown argument. I imagine we've all been in that kind of a conversation at some point or another, haven't we? And so today we're going to be continuing our series looking through this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. 
unpacking something of what he tells us about the key that unlocks our relationships, how we do life together. You know, whatever it is that has caused them to be confusing, whatever it is that's maybe caused them to be painful, whatever it is that's maybe caused them to be just stuck and not feeling like they're going anywhere, Paul says this is the key that unlocks our relationships, that unlocks how we relate to one another. Uh, Before we look at what Paul's going to say specifically into this, let me just kind of remind you a little bit about what Paul's already said, what the kind of context, what the background is in terms of this. So the starting point for Paul isn't, he doesn't begin with, you've got to live like this. You've got to do all this different stuff. You've got to get it right if you're going to follow Jesus. The starting point for Paul is actually about what Jesus has done for us. And helping us to understand all that Jesus has done, all that we receive in Jesus. The starting point for Paul is that he wants us to grasp that whatever mistakes we've made, in whatever ways we've fallen short of God's standards, that in Jesus we're forgiven. That in in Jesus we're washed clean and made new. The starting point for Paul is that he wants us to understand that when we come to Jesus, we become children of God, adopted into his family, that we're accepted and we belong, that we have a place and a family that we're a part of. The starting point for Paul is that he he wants us to understand that that God has given us his Holy Spirit to equip us and enable us and empower us, to, to comfort us, to help us, to strengthen us in every different thing that we face in life. Paul wants us to understand all that God has done for us, to understand that where we belong, who we are, our identity, the fact that we're secure and accepted, that we have a purpose in life. And only after we've received all of that from Jesus, does he now say, live a life that shows the change that Jesus has done in you. First, we receive from God. And then we live out from that place of what God has done, putting on display the work that Jesus has done in our hearts. And as Paul unpacks what this look like, looks like, he talks about so many different aspects, so many different things that we kind of face. And, and one of the things that he talks about that we're going to be looking at today is our relationships. Because you see, the work that Jesus does in our hearts and our lives isn't just about changing us individually. Isn't even just about making good our relationship with God. The work that Jesus does in our hearts and lives is to impact every single one of our relationships in every sphere of our lives. And so Paul says, as you look to follow Jesus, this is the key to unlocking all of your relationships. And this is what he writes in Ephesians 5 verse 21. He says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is hard to even begin to comprehend, isn't it? Hard to begin to think about, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? It's so countercultural. That so often, even inside of us, instinctively, we react against it. We, this word kind of submit, it's not a word that we like, is it? It sounds scary, and it sounds like we'll be vulnerable, and we'll kind of be at risk of being taken advantage of and mistreated. 
And all around us, what's celebrated in our culture is independence and strength. What's celebrated are the people who've been able to get their own way and do what they want and build their business and succeed in these different things. You know, we talk about our rights and how we deserve to be treated. And that if people will treat us well and recognize our rights, then we treat them well in response. But if people don't treat us well, then something inside of us instinctively reacts. We use language like, you owe me respect. If you're going to be a good friend, then you owe me this. As a husband or a wife, you owe me this. As a colleague or a boss, you owe me this. This is how I deserve to be treated. And so often this goes on subconsciously inside of us without us ever even realizing it's happening. But we have this set of expectations that we place on other people about how it is that they should treat us. And when they don't treat us, when the the expectations aren't met, it causes all sorts of problems. And this could be that someone doesn't invite you to something. Or it could be that someone just doesn't seem to listen to you while you're trying to share with them the, the problems and the difficulties you're going through. Or this could be that someone just doesn't seem to value you enough to make you a priority in their time. Or they forget your birthday or your wedding anniversary. Whatever it might be, we feel like they owe us something that we don't receive, that they don't give. And so we end up feeling hurt and upset. And what Paul says here turns all of that on its head. As we think about what it means to submit to one another, to put the other person first, it means that you say, you don't owe me anything. But because I submit, I put myself under you, I owe you everything. I'm not looking for what I can get, but what I can give. I want to take second place as often as I can. And that grates with us, doesn't it? Even as I say it, something inside of me goes, oh! It doesn't come naturally. But Paul tells us that it is this attitude of submission, of putting others first, that is the key that unlocks every successful relationship. And that the opposite of this, that selfishness, is what poisons every relationship. And Paul says the reason that we're to submit to one another is not because the people that we're in relationship with deserve it, that they're great people. It's easy then, isn't it? Some people might be, but a lot definitely won't. Paul says the reason that we submit is out of reverence for Christ. 
It's because Jesus valued that person that you're in relationship with so much that he was willing to put their needs ahead of his own comfort. He was willing to put their needs first, even when it cost him. And so as we look to honor Jesus and to follow him, we're called to do the same. And so this means approaching every one of our relationships by asking ourselves, how can I love you? How can I respect you? How can I serve you in this relationship so that God's name is made much of? With your family, with your friends, in your workplace, with your neighbors at school. Ask yourself, how are you interacting with and relating to people and how can you begin to love them, respect them, serve them so that God's name is made much of? And this is a massive challenge. It's an easy thing to kind of agree with theoretically, but when you start to think about what it looks like, how you outwork it, what this means for you, it's a massive challenge. But as we submit to Jesus and invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts, he wants to work in us day by day to transform us to be more and more like him. And you know, while taking the first step of submitting to one another is hard, you know, actually, when you begin to find relationships where both people have this same heart, this same attitude, it is such a joy. Because suddenly, no longer you're in that relationship looking for what it is you can get. No longer you're in that relationship competing over who's going to get their way. But your relationship becomes a submission competition. Your relationship becomes a race to the back of the line to see who can take second place, not first. And when we have relationships like that, it transforms our marriage. It transforms our friendships. Transforms our relationships with our children and our relationships at work. Paul says submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ is the key that unlocks all of our relationships. And having given us this kind of big picture, he starts to get practical. And to unpack something of what it looks like in specific contexts. He talks about the context of marriage and parenthood and being a child and what it looks like in your workplace, being an employee or a boss. And these are huge subjects. These are things that we could unpack and we could talk about for, for hours and really we can only scratch the surface of today. But even as we scratch the surface, do you know, I think it's impossible for us to start to talk about these things without a sense of personal failing. And not matching up and not managing that in different ways in the relationships that we've had. You know, and I'm not standing here as a kind of a model perfect husband or dad or employee. You know, I've got it wrong more than my fair share of times too. You know, we all come to this, these verses with our own experiences and our own past. With our own hurts that we've been through by people that leave us feeling like, how can I do that? And times where we felt betrayed by people and disappointed by people. And you know, Paul was writing to people with complicated lives too. Their lives weren't perfect. They, they had similar situations where they'd messed up and fallen short. Similar situations where other people had mistreated them. 
And so I don't think Paul's approaching this in a kind of naive way of just saying, you know, this should be the way all your relationships should be in a, in a kind of idealistic kind of way. I think what he's saying is that in the midst of a broken world where relationships are done badly, God has a better way for you. God's got a better way for you. Let's not just accept the brokenness, but let's invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives and to transform us so that we could live lives worthy of the calling we've received that would put something of Jesus on display through the way that we handle our relationships. So let's get into some of the the practical bits that Paul talks about. This is what he writes in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Now these are verses that have been misused and abused in order to excuse wrong behavior. You know, Paul isn't saying that the wife just has to kind of put up with a husband who dictates everything. And says he's always right. Now, what Paul is saying here is actually just as countercultural in his day as it is for us now, only for very different reasons. You see, in the culture that this was written in, women were seen as nothing. They were essentially a husband's property. And so it was that world where the husband dictated and everything he said was right. And they just did what they were told. And so when he wrote these words, wives, submit to your husbands, no one was shocked. It was just a given. That's just life. What was shocking is the fact that Paul addresses wives before he addresses husbands. That he puts them first. That he gives them value and says, I'm talking to you. You matter. You're important. You have a role to play. And that simple act of putting the wives first in the same way that he's going to go on and do with with children and with slaves, these people who were seen as nothing in that society, was revolutionary and was shocking. What's even more revolutionary is that he doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands because that's the culture, that's the norm, that's what you have to do. He doesn't say it because your husband's this great person. He says, wives, submit to your husbands out of your love for the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
You know, but, but the real part that would have been shocking, the real part that was revolutionary, the real part that was radical was what Paul said to the husbands. Because men in the first century were used to being the people in charge. So putting themselves first. And so when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, in the same sacrificial way that Jesus loved the church, in a way that puts her first and cares for her needs, even when it costs you, that's when there would have been uproar. We kind of sit back and we're shocked at the first bit because it doesn't fit with our culture, but the shock and the uproar would have been with a part to do with the husbands. This was a big deal then, and it's a big deal for us today. Because it means that for those of you who are here who are husbands, that when you think about what you live for, what you value, what you enjoy most, that apart from Jesus, your wife should be before it. A husband should never use his headship to crush or stifle his wife or frustrate her from being herself. His love for her will lead him to give himself for her as he puts her first. And suddenly we see that in marriage, what Paul writes here actually invites us to a submission competition. A race to the back of the line to see who can get second place. That both husbands and wives value each other to such an extent that they put each other first. And they've got different roles to play in the marriage, but they, as they play them both, they value one another so much. You know, and while it's been a, a, a challenge, and it definitely doesn't come naturally, you know, over the years of being married to, to Rosie, you know, I have seen how God's design in this, as much as it's countercultural, as much as it doesn't come naturally, as much as it's hard, works. He's designed us to relate in this kind of a way. You know, when I think about the times when my buttons have been pressed the most, those times when I've reacted and gotten defensive and I've kind of lashed out, it almost always boils down in one way or another to feeling like I haven't been honored or respected. You know, I've got grace for a lot of different things, but when I feel attacked or undermined or made out to be inadequate or not enough as a husband, it's like a red flag to a bull. Just being honest. There is something in the way that we are wired as men that means we flourish as husbands when we are respected and honored. And we struggle when we're not. But equally, God knew what he was doing when he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Because the times when Rosie reacts and gets upset, so often come down to her feeling like she's not loved or pursued or cherished. And that leaves her feeling insecure. Here's the thing. When we follow God's design and God's plan for how we relate to one another in marriage, we begin to create a positive cycle. 
Because as a husband loves and cherishes his wife, she will naturally respond by giving him respect and honor because she'll appreciate it. And as the husband receives respect and honor, he's going to be so chuffed that he's going to naturally want to cherish and love his wife. And so you build this kind of positive cycle that reinforces one another. The problem is that the opposite is true too, and we can easily end up creating negative cycles. Because when a wife feels insecure... The way that she then speaks to and responds to her husband from that kind of a place leaves him feeling inadequate, like he's not enough. Because he's left her insecure, he's not met that need and so he's failing somehow. And that feeling of being inadequate leaves him feeling not like he wants to step up to the plate, but feeling like he's defensive and he wants to pull away because he's not respected and he's not honoured. And as he pulls away, the wife feels less loved and she becomes more insecure. And you end up with a negative cycle that reinforces itself and you become more and more distant from one another. Because the reality is that neither of you feel safe with each other. And I want to encourage you, if that's where you're at today, then make the choice in your heart right now to say that things will change and it will start with me. And if you're in a great place with your spouse, then celebrate that and that's fantastic. But make, think about and talk together and make a decision about how you are going to guard your marriage. How you're going to keep putting each other first. And you know, husbands, I want to particularly challenge you. And I want to challenge you to take the lead in this. To take the initiative to be the first one to say you're sorry after an argument. To be the first one to say I love you. To be the first one to give a hug. Because we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And when we look at Jesus' love for the church, what we see is that he takes the initiative. That we only love, that we only submit to Jesus in response because he first loved us. And so if we want our wives to submit and to respect and honor us, then we need to take the initiative. We need to be the first to step out in love. And we need to choose to do that, not just as a one-off and say, well, I did that 10 years ago when I asked you to marry me but to choose to do that every day, again and again. Having talked about husbands and wives, then Paul goes on and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And again, this is countercultural. Children are addressed as equals. They're, they're addressed as, as, as somebody who actually has a role to play in the family. They're called up to say, to take responsibility, to say, how am I going to follow Jesus in my relationship with my parents as a child? That's a big thing to, to say to, to children. 
Paul is saying, children, in your relationships with your parents, what it looks like for you to submit to one another, what it looks like for you to outwork that, is for you to honor them and to obey them. And you know what? You do it not, not first and foremost for your mum and dad. Not because they deserve it, not because they're great, not because they get it right all the time, because they don't. You do it first and foremost out of reverence for Christ. Because it is right and pleasing to Jesus. And then again, Paul says something that would have been shocking to the Ephesian church. And he says, fathers, parents, don't misuse your authority. What it looks like for you to submit and to serve and to put first your children is to not exasperate them and to invest time and love into them in order to raise them in God's ways. And this isn't always easy as parents, is it? So often we're the ones who feel exasperated and we kind of respond out of that that place. You know, and we all make mistakes as parents. I often feel sorry for Evan being our firstborn and um, kind of taking the brunt of our trial and error. He'll get counseling later, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, but as we look to raise our children in God's ways without exasperating them, you know, there are two things that I want to encourage you to do. There's loads of things we could talk about, just two I want to encourage you to do. The first thing is parents be quick to say you're sorry. Own the mistakes that you make. The times that you lose your temper or you snap at them, the times that you tell them off for something that actually they didn't do, but you thought they did, the times that you discipline them more harshly than maybe you should have, model to them repentance. Model to them humility. Admit you were wrong. Say sorry and ask for forgiveness. And when you do that, you submit to them. You put your children before your own pride. And you begin to model to them that we all make mistakes. And that we all need to take responsibility for them. And as you do that, not only will you not exasperate them because they'll see your heart in it, but you're also at the same time training them and instructing them in God's ways. And then the second thing that I think, and I think this is really true for all of our relationships, but to think of your interactions with your children as like making deposits and withdrawals from a bank account. When you encourage them and you build them up and you spend positive time with them and you tell them that you love them, it's like you're putting a deposit into the bank account of their heart. And when you criticize them, when you make fun of them, when you're not there when they need you, when you have to tell them off, which we've got to do at times, but when we do those things, it's like taking a withdrawal out of the bank account of their heart. And all of our children need disciplining, all of our children need telling off at times, but you will exasperate them if you end up leaving their bank account in the red. Because they will end up feeling like you as a parent are their greatest critic and that they can never do enough to please you. 
And at that point, at that point, they're not going to listen to what it is that we say. At that point, they're not going to obey and honor. So be intentional about speaking words of encouragement. Be intentional about telling your children that you love them. I, uh, my little ones, I tell them I love them and they say they know. And that's, they may have heard it so much that it's familiar, but my goodness me, it's better that way around, isn't it? Invest in their bank account by spending time with them. Some of you people do that intentionally by carving out date nights with their children or by saying the particular times of the day they're going to spend with them. But however it is you're going to do it, let them know that they're more valuable to you and that you put them before yourself. The last relationship that Paul speaks specifically into then is that of slaves and masters. And we don't kind of have that at the now, but it really essentially back in his day, that was a normal employment situation. So I think what Paul's really talking about here is those who are under authority and those who are in authority. Employees and bosses. This is what Paul writes. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, can you imagine how awkward it must have been when this was read out in the Ephesian church with the slaves and the masters in the same house together? You know, Paul levels the playing field, says, you who think you're in charge, you're just the same. You're all equal. You're all one in Christ. That's where he says there's neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Says that you both have a high calling. You have different roles to play, but your calling is the same. Submit to one another. Serve one another as you look to follow Jesus. And again, this doesn't come naturally. Paul says, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got a good boss or a bad boss, because ultimately your boss is Jesus and he's the one you're working for, he's the one you're serving. And this calls us up and it challenges us. But you know what? It also means that whatever our work is, we have an amazing purpose. It means that that our purpose has value and dignity and worth no matter what job we're doing. Because it transforms our work into an act of worship. Whether you're a single mom struggling, bringing up kids on your own, whether you're self-employed or you've got your own business or you're a boss of loads of people, whether you're working long hours in the health profession or as a teacher, whether you're a laborer, whether, whatever it is, your work has great value. You know, I remember when I, um, 
worked for an insurance company up in Manchester. And it was one of those kind of open plan offices where everyone's got their desks and their, their kind of phones and every, you know, all that kind of thing. And, but in the middle of the room was a glass office, a glass walled office. And in that glass walled office sat my boss, Graham. I could tell you some stories about Graham. Graham liked to sit in his office, though, and, you know, with the glass walls, he could kind of peruse his, his kingdom. Um, but there would be times when he would come out of the office, and he would walk around the office, but not would he just kind of keep an eye, he would pick a particular person for that time, and he would come and stand over their shoulders and watch what they were doing. And I tell you, when he was stood over my shoulders, I didn't waste a second. There is something naturally in us that when we know we're being watched, we raise our game. And yet Paul says we're to work just as hard when no one's watching us. Because it's an act of worship. Because our boss is Jesus and he sees us all the time. It's part of how we follow him and we honor him. And even if no one notices, even if no one acknowledges us for the hard work we do, even if we never get praised or rewarded by our boss. God's promise is that he's a good boss and that he will reward us for the good work that we do. And when we start to get hold of this, it transforms the way that we see our work. It gives us renewed purpose and vision for our work, knowing that it's about so much more than just getting a pay slip at the end of the month. And if you're in the privileged position of being someone's boss, And just as Paul says to parents, don't misuse your authority. So husbands, don't misuse your authority. He says the same thing to bosses, to employers, to managers. Know that Jesus is your boss too. So ask yourself, how can you use the authority that you have, not for yourself, but to serve and to submit to your employees? the people who you supervise in the workplace. Treat them how you would want to be treated. So what Paul is saying is practical and it's challenging, isn't it? For every single one of us, not just in the relationships that Paul takes time to talk about specifically, but as we begin to think about how do we outwork this. I think Paul's given us an overarching thing for all of our relationships and then he's just picked on a few key ones that he knows loads of people face But how do we actually outwork this in every relationship that we have? Ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to submit to them out of reverence for Christ? Earlier in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Paul wrote, and I love how the message puts this, it says, Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but in order to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Love like that. For a moment, just think about the unconditional love of Jesus. The way that he interacted with people. The way in which he sacrificially gave his life for us. Jesus is our model of what it looks like to submit to one another. To put each other first. What would it look like for you to love like that in your relationships? 
Be honest with yourself about it. There'll be places where maybe you'll go, yes, nailing it. And there'll be places where you'll, you'll know you're not. That's true for me too. What changes can you make in your marriage? In your friendships? In your workplace? In your parenting? So that out of reverence for Christ as an act of worship, not because they're, they deserve it necessarily, but because he does. You can start to put them first in a greater way. And we can't do this on our own, can we? You know, we're, we're not wired in the way that this comes naturally. We've all made messes in our relationships. And we all need God's help. We need to come to Jesus and say, sorry where I've messed up. Sorry where I've got this wrong. Sorry where I've become selfish and I've been misusing my authority. I want to submit to you as king. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me and transform me that I would catch your heart and I would submit to others. That you would be put on display. So I want to finish just with a couple of moments quiet. Um, And what I'd like you to do is just to ask God to highlight to you one way. One way in which he is prompting you to put this into practice. And if every single one of us in this room put just one way into practice, it would bring about such a change. And then I'm going to pray. And then before you go today, I want you to encourage you just to share with one person here what you're going to do. And ask them to pray for you and support you in it. So let's just take a minute's quiet and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today with all sorts of different emotions, all sorts of different feelings, all sorts of different experiences. And Lord, this is hard. Jesus, we want to thank you, though, that you don't ask us to do this on our own. We want to thank you that the starting point is that we don't have to do this from a place of feeling insecure and fearful, but that you want to pour your spirit into us so that we would know your love, so we would know your acceptance, so that our emotional and relational tank would be filled by you, so that we're then able to give out from that place and put others first from that place. So right now, I just pray that you would come and you would fill each and every person here with your Holy Spirit, and you would pour your love into them. You would pour your acceptance into them. That they would know your forgiveness. 
that they would know your grace. That you would fill up that emotional and relational tank within them. That they would have a secure starting point. And Jesus, you know that every single one of us here can hold our hands up and say we've got this wrong at points. And we want to say we're sorry. Just ask that you would wash us clean and forgive us. And I pray, God, that you would give us fresh vision and perspective for our different relationships. Where relationships maybe have been in a bad place for a long time, Lord, that we wouldn't leave this place just with a resignation to, well, that's nice for others, but this is me. But where relationships have been in that bad place, that you would come and you would breathe fresh vision, fresh hope, fresh love that you would breathe into those hearts, you would breathe into people's hearts right now so that they would be able to see their relationships in a different way, whether it be marriages or with with relationships with children that have been strained or relationships in the workplace or with friends or neighbors, whoever it might be, that you would just come and you would give fresh vision and perspective for us to be able to, to see those relationships as you do, to see the value of those people, to see how you love them, And to see how we can honor you and worship you through how we treat them. Lord, grow us as people of submission. That we would begin to lay down that fight for our rights. Our fight for what people owe us. That we would be set free from that. To be able to love and serve and put others first. Come and meet with every person here, Lord. Fill them with your grace and with your love. Let them know your strength and your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me encourage you, if you felt God prompt you as to one change that you can make, share it with someone before you go. Because this doesn't come naturally. We need one another's help. We need one another's prayers and support. And we need one another to hold us accountable to make sure we follow through. So share with someone before you go. Let's be in this together and not alone.